0: My guest today is Professor Eric Bergloff, who is Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics. He is also the Chief Economist of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB, the Beijing-based multilateral development bank established in 2016 with a mission to improve social and economic outcomes in Asia. Welcome, Eric.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So, so so, you have two jobs now, uh, between London and, and Beijing. A uh, the, the, uh, the good part of our conversation today uh, is about an essay that you wrote about uh, the COVID-19, uh, especially um, with the focus on the developing world. You say in this essay, the COVID-19 pandemic is now in a new phase where evolutionary pressures on the virus are building up. The entire world is racing to vaccinate enough people before the virus has changed sufficiently to escape immunity from previous infections or vaccines. Uh, but now we are not winning this race in much of the emerging and developing world, leaving everyone vulnerable to the mutating virus. But why do you say we are not winning this race?
1: Well, I, I think there is uh, very clear that if you look at what happened, uh, sort of at the at the global level, the Rich countries and the big countries have been able to scramble for vaccines and and taken uh, you know the bulk of the vaccines uh, until very recently a few weeks ago essentially no nothing had gone to the developing uh, and emerging part of the world, so there are now some some initial positive signs, but you know they're still trickled in compared to what is needed yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh,
0: the problem, this is a systemic problem, right? So uh, it doesn't really matter if the U.S. or EU gets 70 percent of the people vaccinated. The problem to solve ultimately is to get the herd immunity, get about six billion people vaccinated. Um, because we are traveling all around the place, and you cannot contain something like this, as we found out from the uh, from the pandemic, as well as the the variants that are emerging from different parts of the world. So, the, the, is that is that the problem that we are not really focusing on the entire system of eight point three billion people?
1: Well, I think it's very important uh, what you said. You know, until. You know the virus is extinguished everywhere. We are not. We are not safe anywhere. So, so I think that's a very um, important uh, thing to remember. Actually, I was part of a of a panel of, of scientists, epidemiologists, uh, virologists, and and I was sort of token economist. And we had even an anthropologist, and we looked at starting from different science science scenarios. What will happen to virus? Uh, what will happen to vaccines? To antivirals? You know to to um, fight p- for people who who are have actually got the infection, and so on. And one thing that we concluded from that um, exercise that you know in, this vi- virus will be with us, will as we call endemic, and will be with us for for the foreseeable future, and maybe forever. And it could be that actually what's happened now is that we have introduced a new disease that uh, will be with mankind for for you know for a very long time, and you know even we talk about herd immunity you know what we have seen and that's why these variants are important because we are now seeing that in some places where these evolutionary pressures that i mentioned are particularly high when maybe there are high rates of people who had infections and 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 um, you know so that puts pressure on on the virus to become more effective and we see now that it manages to even people who had uh, covid-19 can get it again and some uh, vaccines are not working against these variants. So, of course, that makes countries even more eager to, and particularly the, the rich and powerful countries, to vaccinate only not only 60 or 70 percent, which is sort of the the number that people talk about for what you call herd immunity. They actually now aiming for 100 percent because they don't feel that they they you know they can guarantee herd immunity. So, you know, there is a, a very uh real possibility also that you know once these vaccines reach the developing world and and the emerging world on, on a larger scale that these vi- vaccines are no longer uh even effective I, I mean it's a bit of a you know um it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way but it's, it's a very real possibility and people have worked on on immunity and so on they are not very convinced and we know that um you know, for for certain things, uh, you know, these are recurring, maybe even annual vaccinations you will have to have to to, to manage, um, uh, maintain immunity. So, you know, a lot of unanswered questions. And, of course, we know a lot more now than we did a year ago, but there's still a lot of uncertainty, both in the scientific dimension, but also on the social science dimension. And we have learned... A lot, but as I said, you know, the, there are so many questions left to to understand. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, from a
0: scientific perspective, it is clear that the viral load, and you have to look at the world as a system, uh, is going to be uh, proportional to the probability of variants emerging. And so it doesn't really matter if you have a few countries fully vaccinated, as long as the virus exists at some level around the world, it is going to create variants. It is going to get uh, mutate. And then the question is, as you say, um, we might end up with sort of, uh, so we have the seasonal flu vaccine. We've been struggling with flu forever. Uh, We haven't been able to conquer that. So we have a seasonal flu vaccine. We might end up with a, uh, a cocktail of vaccines every season that might include uh, maybe a uh, you know a, a set of variants uh, of covid then from an implementation perspective as you say the compliance rate for flu i think in the us is something like 50% EU is in that range but it is not at all prevalent mm-hmm. in the developing world mm-hmm. and so if you're going to rely on sort of a, a a cocktail of vaccines to be given to 6 billion people every year that is going to create a huge implementation challenge, right? We are not even able to do the first one.
1: Yeah, no, I think yeah, so. So, uh, exactly, we can talk a little bit about the the first one. You know, the 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 coordination exercise that's going on at the moment. Uh, I would argue that it's the most ambitious and most comprehensive coordination exercise we have ever tried to undertake. Because it's not, we're not talking about sort of traditional immunization, which mostly focused on on uh, children and now we're talking about whole populations and uh, also working in sometimes very difficult areas and as you know you could even have you know conflict zones where we will never ever be able to reach with uh, you know with immunization campaigns so even in those very maybe geographically uh, constrained um, environments uh, the virus can persist so that's why it's so important now to early on get a very broad um, uh, delivery Uh, and there are very nice and and well thought out um, uh, schemes for getting this in place but it it just has taken a long time to, to get them to start to work there's something called COVAX which basically is trying to at least provide Twenty percent of the population in the poorest countries, and that it took a long to get start, Long time to get started, but the sort of positive news that I mentioned earlier is that actually these first COVAX vaccine deliveries have now arrived in in Africa, and of course, to have the vaccine there is just the one first step because then you have to, you know, get it out to where it's supposed to be. Uh, you know uh, people are going to be immunized. you have to get the people to come to you have to store it. Some of these vaccines require extreme cold and so on so you know and you won 't have to keep track of who was vaccinated These are very complex exercises and and uh, you know unfortunately it, it it's it's um, it, it's a it 's a very real possibility that we uh, will not uh, in this first even in this first effort uh, manage to to reach the the levels that we need.
0: Yeah, it it is a complex exercise. Anecdotally, Eric, uh, I live in the U.S., as you know. Uh, I'm in the 50s. I got my first dose a couple of weeks ago. My parents live in South India. My dad is in the 80s. My mom is in the 70s. And they just got their first dose Mm. a couple of weeks ago. Um, Did they get the Indian
1: uh, uh, vaccine or...
0: Yeah, I don't know exactly what which one they got. It sounds like the Indian mm-hmm. uh, vaccine, mm-hmm. um, uh, but uh, I was a bit confused because they said 28 days uh, second dose was needed. Uh, but I don't know much about the the Indian vaccine. But yeah, I mean, it has, see- so
1: that's quite standard. I mean, the, these uh, times between uh, uh, jabs are, are a bit arbitrary, and for some it's a longer. For I think we don't know for sure exactly what is the right uh, interval and, and there are some vaccines now that only require one jab but most require two jabs so
0: yeah and you know if you like if you take india for example to get the herd immunity there you got to get one billion doses mm-hmm. in and um just keeping the records this hasn't been tried before as you say mm-hmm. And, and china since uh, potentially in the same state i don't know a lot of <laughs> a lot of information on china uh and then uh Africa hasn't even started um you you mentioned in this uh in this essay uh you know you, you sort of um existing uh resistance so perhaps previous infections uh previous um, uh, even vaccines, uh, there was some speculation that BCG, the vaccine against TB, was somewhat effective against COVID. Um, do, do you have any information from China that that tells us that the prevalence of COVID could be a lot lower in the developing world for, for whatever reasons?
1: No, I think, first of all, it, it, there are a lot of... Let's try, let's try to unpack the, the question because it had many components. So first of all, I think what we see uh, that some countries in Asia and China is one of them, but also Taiwan, Vietnam, very importantly, uh, uh, Korea, even Cambodia, there are several countries that have been remarkably successful. And, you know, basically the the strategy has been to, you know, hit very early. So in China's case, basically closing down the whole economy and uh, basically have a zero tolerance. I can talk more about how that works because I'm living in that environment at the moment. Uh, Korea has used a very different method, which is really about um, trying to uh, test and track, or and and then in that way uh, keep the 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 uh, the number of infections down. So there are many strategies, and I think these strategies, the choice of strategies, reflect, of course, uh, to some extent, uh, the cultures, but. And, and possibly also the sort of economic and political systems. But I think more importantly, they reflect recent experience. So, so um, you know, we had SARS in, in China, and, and of course Vietnam has, ex, had experienced that. We had something called MERS that affected Korea. So there are, I think, historical experience matters a lot, and both at the level of, uh, of what governments and, and you know, medical institutions do, but also how people react. And I think one very important lesson, actually one that I think is, is perhaps the most single most important for thinking about future uh, uh, kind of pandemics, is that people respond to information and they make their own assessment, ap- apply, you know, their... Uh, their beliefs. So, you know, if they're told, like in some countries that this is not a a very dangerous thing, it's like, you know, I I can give, you know, no need to cite people, but you can, you know, there were leaders, there were even prominent scientists who were saying this is like a, a cold, you don't worry about it. You know, if you get those conflicting signals, people, that will affect people's response. So I think there's also uh, I can give you one uh, sort of interesting piece of, of research which shows a little bit also why why it's important to think about these um, individual responses, uh, you know, in addition to the sort of government policies. So there, there's a study that looks at uh, Denmark and Sweden and, and basically uses some uh, data from a bank that had customers in Sweden and Denmark. And Sweden had a very, as you probably have heard about, this was had a very liberal kind of... Uh, policy yeah. that, you know, this is, and there was even early discussions that we, let's go to herd immunity and, and then we'll be fine and, and be just managed. But yeah. I think that, as we know now, you know, Sweden is a is a, um, a, 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 a very tragic failure. And, you know, the number of deaths yeah. are about, you know, the order of 10 times what you have in the other Nordic countries. Denmark chose a very different way. So that's why it's interesting to compare what happened to, to, to people's behavior? So, so, what this article does is that it looks at consumption patterns. How much did people uh, adjust their consumption? And, and I, the, the rough neighborhood is that, say, on about 25% of consumption reduced um, in both countries just uh, um, because of individual behavior. So, people responded in the same way, independent of whether there were rules or not. And then the rules yeah. added maybe another 4%. So you can see that it's that individual responsibility or, or response is, is so important. But that government intervention also mattered because that, that, those 4% were very concentrated on the impact on young people. In, and so in, in Denmark, where they have stricter rules, these rules affected very much the consumption patterns of, of young people. These are the super spreaders, if you want. And so they managed to yeah. contain that. Very interestingly, also in Denmark, the consumption of older people was higher. And that also makes sense because older people felt, felt safer when these uh, rules were in place and there were restrictions on, on movement, you, were, you know, wearing masks and those things. So, you know, these are, we are still in the very early phase of learning about how individuals, uh, households uh, and, and so on re- re- react and respond to this. And, and none of these if you look, go back and look at the sort of epidemic um, models that were used at the early stages of, of this pandemic, none of them capture this. And I think there's been a lot of research and hopefully when we come out of this pandemic, that has been one of the most important insights is that we need to com- integrate into these um, various um, pen, uh, epidemic models uh, this uh, human behavior and 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 the fact that people will s- look at the information they have with look at the behavior of others and so on and and um, so 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 I think there are so many lessons to be had from this uh, from this experience
0: yeah. yeah hopefully we'll learn from it uh, i'm not that optimistic mm-hmm. eric uh, human uh, typically, don't learn a lot uh, from from previous experiences. No, well, you say that,
1: but as I gave you some examples. I think of where these yeah. things are so traumatic, and as we see now, and and you know the experience that people had in 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 China, in China uh, from SARS, the experience that people had from MERS in 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 uh, Korea. You know, they may decay over time, but they are sufficiently recent to really uh, affect behavior today is my, my, but I agree that, you know, there's also a lot of, of uh, you know, collective uh, uh, sort of Alzheimer's, or, you know, people do, do forget.
0: The, as you say, culture and political systems matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we can look at um, US, UK, Brazil mm-hmm. example and contrast that, albeit, right. uh, you know, smaller. New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea, and you can see how these countries actually went about uh, tackling the problem mm. uh, and, uh, you know, very different approaches, as you say, and very different results as well. Mm. Uh, uh, people tend to say it's a scale problem, uh, but uh, it's unclear if it's just a scale well, problem. a scale you, problems, problem? A uh, scale problem meaning it's easy for New Zealand to
1: tackle no, something no, like this. No, it's I think not. This is uh, this is bogus. Yeah. I mean, so so I think that what it's important to some extent for New Zealand was that it's an island. You know, a small, relatively small island, but it's an island that can very easily and did very early on uh, regulate uh, you know flights in and out of, of New Zealand. You know, Australia has had a you know it's a larger island if you want has uh, has yeah. uh, you know had a very uh, interesting strategy of, you know, basically have very open as soon as there was uh, the least infection, you may have seen this during the Australian Open, the tennis tournament that, you know, they clamped down immediately a lockdown and, you know, some, you know, Melbourne, for example, has been through, you know, several lockdown, but they have really managed to sort of nip it in the bud and, and uh, reduce the number of infections, but but most importantly, the number of, of deaths. So so I think again, that, I think we should think about many different strategies. But basically, all of them are trying to get at this early on. That is both from a sort of humanitarian, uh, ethical point of view, superior, but also from an actually a purely economic point of view. So if you look at China now, you know the China's economy is booming, and it's uh, you know it, it did closed down and there was some severe impact and people made big sacrifices in in the early part of 2020 but now the economy is back you know people meet and open have, go to restaurants you know the economy is booming the chinese exports are doing very well and so on so you know there's this discussion that we have seen particularly in the US around you know these uh, you know we have to save the economy to let the virus loose you know this is I think a a, a very flawed, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of approach, uh, kind of logic behind that. But of course, it makes it much harder to to do the kind of strategies that Australia has done and 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 Korea has done and what China has done. If you don't act early, if you have this kind of mixed messages that you had in the U.S. and that you had in in uh, in uh, also in the U.K., I think it's a good example. Very Confusing messages and then shifting strategy in the middle, and of course, we see, you know, the number of deaths have been, uh, you know, very high. Actually, the two countries that, you know, when you looked at uh, at the, um, you know, at what you call the pandemic preparedness index that was constructed before the yeah. pandemic, the U.S. and the U.K. were highest, and you know, those are the countries with. Uh, you know, among you know, if you're not, but uh, certainly a very high up there in terms of number of deaths per uh, per capita. So, you know, we, I think we we have also learned that pandemic preparedness is, um, you know, something that we you know don't fully understand or at least didn't fully understand. and We have learned something about that as well.
0: Yeah. Preparing is one thing, Eric. Uh, what we also learned from this uh, cycle is that leadership matters. Uh, leadership, when something bad happens, uh, really matters. Uh, if you want to differentiate how countries tackle this. You can go straight to their mm-hmm. leaders and uh, you will get a very high correlation between what the leaders were doing and what the outcomes have been. It's not that difficult. Uh, to get that data, to analyze that data, you have a larger point in the essay. Uh, you say that we could piggyback onto this most ambitious of global coordination exercises to build up resilient health systems, prepare for future pandemics, and expand towards universal health coverage. Um, could you could you expand on that a little bit? Why do you, why are you optimistic that this will allow us to create a more resilient? No, system? so I,
1: I think so, so. The point I want to make is that you know, we have had, um, should I say, wavering support for this global um, vaccination effort. And there are reasons for that, because as I alluded to earlier, vaccinations are very um, particular exercises, are very specialized uh, entities, and there's not a lot of experience. Like, you know, the, the the bank I work for, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and it's a new bank, and it hasn't really done anything on health before um, uh, COVID came and now in the last year it's done almost everything has been in one way or another health related. But now we have uh, decided or we are thinking about how to uh, create a a stronger or or, or build a health business if you want. And I have actually been in charge of thinking that through. What you really must understand there that to, to work in the health in general, requires a lot of capacity it's a very it's fraught with uh, market failures as we say and government failures and and you know very heavy regulated errors. so you need a lot of institutional understanding so first but if you then take this to the vaccination project it's even worse because you know when you go in and and do these kind of vaccination campaigns first of all you have to you know choose which vaccine and that's a very Complicated process, and and also um, there's not very transparent process. By the way, the prices are not really revealed often, and so on. But then you have to decide, you know, who is going to get it first. Every country goes through this, uh, or or, or the, at least the countries that have vaccines now, they go through this process, and it, you know, it's very sensitive. You know, some countries decide to protect the vulnerable. Other countries say we should try to rid, you know, make get get rid of, of the Of those who are most likely to spread even though vaccines we don't know very much how how much they help against spreading you know others say that we should uh, you know make sure that the working population is vaccinated you know so and these are very profound um, decisions that it's very hard for any outside organization to to really um, uh, intervene in so these decisions have to come out of some kind of you know whatever democratic or whatever political process you have in a country. So so that's the first thing. But then you you know you have often there are security concerns. with so traditionally a lot of vaccination efforts have been about you know we call it fly by night operations because of security concerns for health workers and, and maybe even for the people who uh, get these vaccines. Because in some countries of course there are a lot of you know uh, bad information of, about what the vaccines are and and what why they are being vaccinated and there have been maybe abuses and so so i'm just saying these are very complicated things so for institutions to take on this kind of business it's it's very uh, it's very striking that that uh, few even the World Bank which has you know more than a thousand people including their consultants working on health, there are very few people who know something about vaccination and maybe one or two people who know something about vaccinating a whole population. And then you have to go to unicef. I mean, I'm just yeah. saying the, the complexity here when it comes to delivery of you know, procurement and buying vaccines may be complicated itself, but then you have to deploy vaccination, logistics, you know, all, all the things that come with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the issue is it's a worldwide problem and it's unclear to me eric uh, you you can let me know it's unclear to me if there is any world organization including the who uh is in a position to tackle a worldwide pandemic problem um, i don't know if they have the resources if they have the power uh, if they have the authority to do anything about it if we don't have a worldwide organization uh, in this context. Pandemics are here to stay, as most scientists uh, would think. Uh, this is just the first iteration. We're going to have many iterations like this. And if we don't have a worldwide organization, we're going to get this patchwork of um, of um, interventions by different countries. Uh, and it's, it's not going to really help us uh, to actually solve the problem. So do you see are there organizations, um, worldwide organizations, who can step into, um, you know, sort of thinking about the small policy? I
1: was actually part of an exercise, a very interesting exercise, that the G20 uh, commissioned under the German presidency. And, and uh, there was a report presented in 2018. Uh, and it was focusing not just on on pandemics, but it was focusing on, on sort of the global Financial system in terms of development and in terms of financial stability and of course we see now that you know a pandemic is very you know it's it's you know killing people getting people sick you know affecting growth but it, but it's also uh, affecting financial stability and so on so we thought a lot uh, about it uh, at the time and and i think there is there are some ideas for how to Create what we call sort of global platforms, and they have to look different for different types of global challenges. And they look different from for climate and and maybe for uh, you know migration and so on. But for when it comes to pandemic response, it's very clear that there has to be a an institution that can lead this with the, with the political, because it's as I emphasised, there are so many political decisions, and that there are of course very profound uh, scientific uh, uh, decisions to make. And you know the best thing we have is the WHO. And you know if we didn't have it, we would have to invent it. Of course, a lot has been done, as you know, to to undermine it over the and And you know, there, I'm not saying that there are problems with WHO for sure, but you don't want to really address those problems in the middle of a pandemic. So I, I think that we have done WHO a disservice. And I actually work a lot now with uh, WHO here in in, in Asia. And uh, you know they have a lot of yeah. competence, a lot of experience, but again they they have become politicized, you know, in different ways by different countries. But I think particularly, uh, uh, how should I put it? Particularly seriously in 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 the pandemic response, and you know they, they yeah, but even WHO does not have this experience on on vaccinating uh, full population, so. We, they have to build those kind of, of uh, uh, expertise, and the UNICEF has been very important for vaccination. And so, I think the, the lesson from all this is that we need a system with uh, institutions like the WHO and UNICEF for, so the medical and political leadership, and then you need the what you call the multilateral development bank, you know, like like AIIB to help deliver and you know build. Uh, health systems that are more resilient i think one of the lessons that we draw from this pandemic is that you know there were such deep fragilities in in really in just basic health care that has amplified the impact of, of the pandemic and of course a lot of other things also social inequity and, and and so on and the difference across the effect on women and men all those things have come out and, and we need to think about you know when the next pandemic comes because it will come and and most likely it will come more often because of the things that are happening to our climate and the fact that we are increasingly moving into areas where you get these kind of jumps of viruses from animals to humans and and you know get that whole uh, process started again so we need to seriously think what are the lessons uh, from 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 this experience yeah.
0: so uh, so, Eric, you're Chief Economist of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB. Uh, what, what is the remit
1: of AIIB? Well, so, so, so you first know? of all, you know, we are a very new institution. Uh, it, was, it has now uh, 103 shareholders. I think it it thinks of itself or we think of ourselves as, as really trying to look at the world also from the perspective of the emerging and, and developing Kind of certainly, I think, see my own role as a, as a chief economist to, to really try to see, for example, as I've tried to convey now in, in thinking about this um, pandemic, that, you know, what is what does the world look like for, from these countries and how can we um, get policies, build institutions that better uh, represent those countries and, and better support their growth for their response to to the pandemic. I think that's very Core to to what AIB does, of course, AIB was created initially for physical infrastructure, but increasingly then became for digital infrastructure, and and now we see you know, what happened in in, uh, in the pandemic that you know a lot of this uh, uh, physical infrastructure is underutilized or or you know completely locked down because of the pandemic, and at the same time you know a lot of the opportunities that have been created. Comes from the digital dimension that people have been able to, in in some countries and in some professions, work remotely and and manage to. But of course, this is very uneven, and these kind of digital divides have been, you know, emphasized or uh, made more transvisible uh, uh, because of of the pandemic. I think you know, if you look at it, if you want to take something positive out of the pandemic, uh, it is that it has accelerated. And development was already underway, but I think the world will not look the same in, in this respect after the pandemic. And and I think there is also hope that if we can push these um, uh, digital access into a much broader uh, parts of, of the world and parts of, of the population, that that can have very significant uh, development uh, effects and, and affect people's uh, lives and livelihoods in, in very profound ways.
0: Yeah, so AIB. So where, where does the funding come no, so from for AIB?
1: A, what you call a multilateral development bank. It has, uh, as I said, 103 shareholders. So 103 countries have paid in. China uh, is the largest shareholder, uh, and you know it's like one one third or or a little bit less of, of the of the capital. Uh, there are other big shareholders, are Korea um, and and India, for example. Actually, but the the largest country operation, as we say, the country where most of the Money from AIB is invested uh, is in in India, so it's about one fifth of the portfolio is in India, and and of course uh, working in in different parts of India, trying to build infrastructure. We know that India has you know less infrastructure per you know than what you would expect given its uh, population and its level of development. So there are very large needs uh, in in India, but you know that's true for other countries in. In Asia as well, and and you know that's, I think what AIB was created to meet. There was of course the Asian Development Bank already, but I think the perception was that there was this wasn't sufficient to to meet the very large need. But these economies are growing very fast, you know, growing populations, huge needs to adjust these economies to, you know, to reduce the impact on climate and eventually, you know, move to you know, net zero carbon and so on—all those changes. You know, giving people access to jobs. Uh, you know, dealing with large migration pressures uh, into cities and so all those things require massive infrastructure investment. So that, and I think you know, there will be room for more institutions for sure. But, but uh, for me, it's very exciting to work at the at the new institutions. I worked at slightly older institutions, and there are all these questions of that you ask about. You know what is the purpose? We're kind of thinking about them almost on a, on a, uh, a daily basis because you know there are decisions that we make that will impact where the bank goes in the future.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You say uh, it was it was conceived uh, with a focus on physical infrastructure, but increasingly you're thinking about yeah. the digital infrastructure. Uh, the pandemic. Um, Uh, may have accelerated the need for digital infrastructure. Uh, I don't know what it's going to do to the physical infrastructure. Perhaps one could argue the physical transport of humans uh, perhaps will decline. So many of the conventional uh, physical infrastructure needs uh, may decline, but on the other hand, uh, the digital infrastructure requirements are going to be a lot higher. So, in some sense, uh, perhaps optimistically, this might be a way to leapfrog, um, you know, from uh, from where you are uh, in large Asian countries, and and really focus on how the future might look like. Is that no, I think that about it?
1: Uh, we should probably not completely uh, uh, leave out the physical infrastructure. You know, it's still very important for for livelihoods and people's. You know, standard of living in in, in 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 you know, particularly in rural areas, but also you know the there is a lot of issues around infrastructure in 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 uh, in the big cities as well. So you know, it's not like this will not. Uh, there will continue to be growing needs for that. But I, I do agree that there is an opportunity for uh, for uh, Asia and and for emerging and developing countries to perhaps, as you say, leapfrog to to pass. Over some development stages and you know, there are many examples of this. So for example, look if you look at, at China and it's, it's, it's very interesting when you live here that you know, a big problem in China's historically has been that you know, the life uh, if you live in remote areas have been you know, very poor, very poor access to finance, poor access to goods, you know very uh, um, uh, you know, few uh, no health services, all those things. But actually, today, you know, this is a remarkable achievement by combination of, you know, these online sales you Alibaba and, and so on, as Taobao as they call it in here, yeah. that has increased the range of goods available, you know, to these uh, communities and to these uh, people in in you know, dramatically. So basically, wherever you live in China, in a big city like Shanghai or Beijing, or or you know, in very remote areas, in you know, in Xinjiang or wherever. You know you have access to the same goods, but more importantly, you also have access to uh, means of finance that were just impossible because the, the the banks didn't reach or or you know the methods for getting information were so uh, antiquated and so on. You know through these um, digital payment systems that they have now, we you know we call it WeChat or Al Alipay and so on. These are fantastically efficient and and uh, has radically changed the lives for for people and and this is in a way a a sense of of of, of leapfrogging it's it's a kind of financial development model that we haven't seen before that at such you know a lower level of, of development you get this incredible um, um spread of, of of access and you know we are going into health as i said digital health opens up similar possibilities now you, there are techniques that you can put People, for example, that are uh, here in, in China and also in, in, in many other places, actually, in the world, there are um, midwives walking around with a little backpack with equipment that allows them to go to, to pregnant women and, and then send the signals uh, from the uh, examinations or the test results and so on to some hospital, maybe in another part of the world, and get almost immediate responses. And you know that's a whole new way sort of, you know, in the Chinese context of barefoot doctors, you can, there are now, like, telephone booths that you can go into uh, in China and you can get a a complete uh, kind of uh, health check and you can, wherever you are in China. And this is not fully disseminated yet, but I think these are opening up, you know, fantastic opportunities to, you know, not only um, financial and, and access to goods, but also access to health.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to finish up with one other thought you have in the paper. You say finally, and perhaps most crucially, more of the production and even research should happen in the emerging and developing world. One of the things that we learned uh, is uh, in this episode is, is really the risk of concentration, risk of concentration in supply chains, um, risk of concentration in other aspects of uh, research and development and manufacturing. Um, are, are you suggesting, uh, Kia, that, I don't know what the mechanism might be, but uh, sort of a broad idea that uh, you, you have to think about risk management in a more distributed fashion uh, for the world. Uh, yeah. As you say, pandemics are going to be here um, over and over. This is just a start of a cycle. And so if you're going to manage the risk, the, the future risk, it has to be more difficult yeah, A very good summary.
1: And maybe I'll give some examples of, of what, what I have in mind. So, so I've, I've worked a lot with uh, building kind of intellectual environments, uh, supporting policy in different countries. And the whole point behind that has been that, you know, it's, you can't have megaphones sitting in Washington or wherever, uh, you know, London, Brussels, wherever, and telling people around the world that this this is what you're going to do, and long lists of things that you're going to implement. That's not how it works, and it will never be accepted, and will never work uh, as as we would like. You need to have people who sit in in, uh, different parts of the world, think on their own, connected to these international uh, maybe research centers and so on, but they should have their own research capacity to to be able to absorb and, and take uh, information that comes from maybe some of these you know, uh, famous universities and so on. That's uh, how we re- build I think policy in general but on the pandemic side I think it's particularly important. I, and there's an example, I have a friend who is a, a very prominent uh, uh, researcher on pandemics and, and so on. He, he worked building a research hospital in Hanoi for 15 years and it's the whole like, thinking behind that was that, you know, if you're going to respond to a global pandemic, you cannot sit again you know, in Washington or wherever and just give orders and now you do this and that. First of all, you, you don't know the local context. You don't know exactly what it looks like. And uh, you may also get the information quite late. So it's very important, even if you cannot build this the same depth and the same you know, scale of research uh, in each individual country, that you need to have a group who thinks of it on its own? And frankly speaking, you know, I think the very important part of what happened in in, in mm-hmm. Vietnam, which has had almost no deaths from uh, from uh, the pandemic, yeah. it was a combination, as I said, of the history, the the recent experience, but also the fact that they had very significant thinking capacity on their own and and tried to see, you know, how do we respond in a science scientific way, but also how do we respond. In a sort of uh, pandemic, epidemic uh, response and a social. Similarly, in, in, in Wuhan, there was actually a center that had been partly connected to the Hanoi Center, but also connected to some uh, institutions in the UK that very early on you know, put up the, the, uh, the, uh, the DNA sequence of the virus. you got this explosion of, of, uh, of scientific activity. Because there was this local capacity and that has been the base I think for for vaccines coming so quickly I mean this is really uh, unprecedented speed in, in generating vaccines and it comes to some extent at least from this more decentralized um, uh, system that you need to respond to to different global challenges
0: yeah yeah excellent yeah this has been great uh no, thank thanks you so i really much enjoyed it and,
1: and uh, i think you you have really put the, the finger at some very important issues so thank you for having me sure yeah thanks so
0: much this is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.